So uh, we're going to be in Matthew 6.33 today. Uh, if you have one of the black Bibles, which are available just outside the door there, it's on page 860. If you don't have one of those, good luck. No, you've got it. I know that you do. Um, I need to flip in my own Bible there. There we go. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about spiritual renewal in this new year. Uh, before we get into that, though, um, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love that are towards us. Thank you that before we were even born, you decided to seek after us by sending your son to our earth to translate your truth, your love, your grace, your mercy, so that we would know you. Not only that, Father, but to make a way for us to know you through his death, through his resurrection. Father, we pray that in the same way that Jesus invaded Israel and Jerusalem, that your word would be invading our hearts and our minds right now, that we would be rolling you and your truth around in it, that it would be preeminent in our midst right now, and even as we leave this place. Father, I pray that you would use me and the teaching, the study this week, the training, the truth that has transformed my life to translate your truth on this stage and to those who are listening at home today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I do want to, just a couple of really cool things I was thinking of as we listened to the Clarks present. Uh, they talked about heart language. I don't know if you guys caught that. That must be an emphasis in New Guinea. Is that correct? That heart language concept? Or is that a Wycliffe? That's a Wycliffe emphasis. Yeah. So you each have a heart language, right? Things that you know of that are significant to you and a specific language. And some of that has to do with your family, right? So I'm guessing that there are songs that you can hear that you grew up with in your household or in your formative years. There are foods that you can smell, right? Things that you can be aware of instantly. And it transforms you, uh, takes you back to another place, brings up memories of warmth and excitement. Uh, some of you may have things that are difficult in your heart language when things come up, you remember that. Um, but that, that concept of Jesus coming to you in the place that is most true, most clear, is important. And it's a privilege that we don't recognize that we have so much of. I mean, I, I can name dozens of English translations that are targeted for me. And then every few years, uh, fantastic capitalist companies publish a new one so that I can read it in my heart language afresh and be reminded of God's goodness, right? But for many of the people that they're ministering to, that others are ministering to, there's nothing like that. Um, and what's interesting to me is that that's what Jesus came to do, right? Like in the beginning of John, the beginning of Hebrews, God's word says that Jesus is God's translation of himself to us. That Jesus is God showing us in our heart language what God is like, perfectly, clearly, and exactly. And imagine that there are people around the world who have never been able to encounter that Jesus. They've never been able to encounter God in their heart language. And I love listening to the Clarks and their story and their passion for their mission because they're bringing Jesus to these people, right, in their heart language. And how awesome is that? And what's amazing is that's actually the same mission that we're on. Even though our neighbors speak the same language that we, that, that we do, they don't know Jesus yet in their heart language. I'm convinced that if they did, they would have so much more blessing and love, and they would surrender their hearts to him, right? Because how can you encounter this king of love, this king of peace, without accepting him into your life and seeking after him. Although I, I know that it's possible people do reject him because of spiritual issues, all sorts of things. But uh, nonetheless, when we encounter the risen Christ, it is powerful and compelling. So thank you guys for 
translating Jesus in your lives and being a part of teams that are doing that in a literal way because it's a blessing to hear about. Uh, anyways, so let's get back to the topic at hand. Uh, Happy New Year. I'm so glad that you are here. I mean, it's amazing to me. I was thinking about uh, where would I be if I wasn't a pastor on New Year's Day? And I was wondering, would I show up to church or would I like phone it in? Would I watch online? Would I listen later? Would, would I, you know, seek God eventually? Uh, but would I have sought a good time so much last night that I had nothing left to seek God with today? And, I, and I'm not even saying like a bad good time, right? I'm not saying I would get drunk or anything like that, but I would have spent my energies on my own pursuits and then had nothing to give God. But here all of you are today. You have chosen to spend time pursuing Jesus today, and I'm so thankful for that, and I want to encourage you in that. It's such a good habit to pursue Jesus. Uh, also, there are other things that we do in the new year. I, I've been thinking a lot uh, in like philosophical ways about life. I guess I, I do that when I have free time, and I had free time this week, and I was thinking about the holiday season, right? So it kicks off with Thanksgiving, and uh, what do we do at Thanksgiving? We eat, yes, okay, good, and then hopefully we give thanks and we wear our sweatpants. You know, all those things go together at the same time, and it's, it's really good, right? So we start out the holiday season, hopefully with Thanksgiving, and then we move into Christmas, and what do we do? We eat, good, yep, and we buy bigger sweatpants, and uh, we do other things too, like we give gifts, and we receive gifts, and we celebrate, and we honor Christ, and that's really good uh, and, and wonderful. Uh, and then finally, we have the new year. And then what do we do? We eat, good, good. And, and then we celebrate, and we have hope, and we enter into this new year. And I was watching a lot on my Instagram feed about how everybody, Christian and non-Christian, is like, the new year is the new start. The old year is gone, this new year is coming. Whether trials or blessings were in the past year, there's this clean slate today. And there's a chance to start over new and a chance to start over fresh. So what do you want this new year to be, right? And what's interesting is there is this emphasis on future hope. And for many of those who don't know Christ, I'm hearing a lot about this like manifest thing. Like you, you are going to personally manifest what you're going to receive in this new year. And it's this strange new age belief that my mental energy, the pursuit of my soul and my mind and my heart can give me what I want in the future. Some sort of cosmic lottery. Uh, there's a lot of um, pop culture icons that prescribe to this sort of thing. Oprah Winfrey chiefly comes to mind that if you're going to have a good thing, it's because you've said in your mind that you're going to have it. And in your mind, you get it. And if you're not getting it, there's something wrong in your mind. You're actually seeking something else. So they do a lot of mental work to get you into that goodness of the new year. And then on the Christian side, there's a lot of speaking of grace and mercy and a fresh start. And what's interesting to me is that for us who know Christ, this day is actually no different than the day before, right? Because God's mercies are new when? Every morning, right? And they were new yesterday morning and they were new this morning and they'll be new tomorrow morning just the same. Because God is always ready to turn that page. God is always ready to start over with you. Each day, there's reason to hope, there's reason to rejoice, and there's reason to glory in Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to talk to you about what this new year is going to hold for you. Now, how many of you have plans for this new year already? 
things that you want to accomplish, things that you want to do this year. Me, me too. In fact, the list is too long, if I'm really honest, right? There's like holdover goals from last year that didn't happen in life and around our property, and then there's new things that I want to get started. And so I'm looking at this list, and I'm saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to need you to prioritize this for me, because I can't possibly do all of this. You're going to need to direct me to your plans and your paths. But then there's other things, just nice things that I'd like to see happen in this new year. Family that I'd like to see, traveling that I'd like to do, personal growth that I'd like to pursue. Maybe you have these same things happening. But in the midst of this, what I realize when I'm really thinking about this next year, what I hope for is satisfaction in my soul. You know, when we think of this new year, I think that's what we're really all after. I mean, after all, how many people did you say to this morning, happy new year. What did you mean by that? Did you mean appropriate seasonal greetings to you? Because I don't know what else to say to you. Was it just a nice greeting? Maybe. But I think there's something else that comes in that loaded statement. It's a wish not just for today, but the 364 days that follow today as we wait for the next year. And it's a sincere desire for happiness and blessing in you and your household's experience. But not just happiness, right? how long does happiness last? How big is the slice of cake, right? I mean, how long does it take me to eat or enjoy this satisfying experience that I'm in? And then we often move on and we seek to find a new happy experience. So we know that happiness doesn't really last. It's like a flower here today and gone tomorrow. And so what we really need mean is a satisfying new year, a year that is filled with goodness in such a way that your heart delights and rejoices in the experience that you have in this year. That's what I'm interested in this year. Anybody else interested in a satisfying year? A year that has goodness in your soul, not just in each moment of happy experience, but something that goes beyond cake and ice cream and moments with children and grandchildren and laughter with the television or whatever it is that you hope for in each moment. But a joy and a satisfaction that is deep within your soul. Well, I've got good news, because Jesus wants that for you this year as well. Not that he wants every moment to be happy, because certainly it won't be, right? Because every year holds happiness and sorrow. Every year holds blessing and mourning. Every year holds beauty, and it holds ashes. But God still has satisfaction in the midst of each of those things, and there's a way to find it. And so today, that's what I want to talk to you about. How can you find satisfaction in this year? You can find satisfaction in experiencing spiritual renewal with Jesus and your relationship with him. And so we're going to look at Matthew 6.33 and understand it together. So Matthew 6.33 says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. So uh, I want to unpack that just a little bit because it's just a snippet. And I was praying today because this is, this is a section of scripture that we love to preach about as pastors. And yet at the same time, I think it's one of the most challenging sections of scripture to understand. It's a chunk of Jesus' life where he gives a sermon and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Most of you have probably heard of this. It lasts for a little more than three chapters of the text, right? And Jesus is essentially describing what it means to live for him and to follow after him. And there's confusion in how it preaches. Either it's a prescription on how to have eternal life, or it's a description of what it looks like to live the eternal life once you have it. 
I think it fits better in that category, and yet at the same time, there's some actions that feel a whole lot like a doctor's prescription for your life. Like if you want to have certain things, there's a way to get that. So for instance, there's this whole section called the Beatitudes, and that means the blessed statements. And the life verse of the young lady was from that, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God, right? Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And so in one way, it's like a prescription. If you want satisfaction, if you want to inherit the kingdom, now you know what you need to do. You need to learn to be poor in spirit or contrite, humble before the Lord, recognizing that he is the one who will provide you everything that you need in life. Or you must hunger and thirst for God's righteousness if you want to really be satisfied. And believe it or not, the same struggles of your soul with being finding satisfaction on earth are not new. They existed in the same way in Jesus' time. They may not have had televisions, but they had lots of things to distract them. And our physical life causes us so much pain that most humans seek physical satisfaction rather than spiritual satisfaction in Christ first. And so it comes at us, and it sounds like a prescription often. But ultimately, what Jesus is doing is he's really describing what it looks like. And then we through the power of the Holy Spirit, come under holy conviction that God is calling us into a new way of living. And that's where the prescribing starts. It's like the doctor saying, I have better things for you than being sick, so learn this instead of that old way of doing things. So as we dive into this text, we're pulling a chunk of that sermon out. And beyond that, we're within a different or a specific chunk of that where Jesus talks about wealth, and satisfaction with the things of life, and anxiety, and isn't it ironic that people were anxious about money 2,000 years ago, and so many people are anxious about money even right now, right? Like one of the biggest pieces of bad news of the fall this year is that the economy is doing really bad, right? And people are really upset about this and concerned over our national leadership and the future of our country because the American dollar is worth less than it was a little while ago, right? And so we have these massive economic concerns. In the same way, the culture then struggled. People were surviving day to day. They didn't know where their daily bread was going to come from. They didn't know if they were going to have the things that they needed for life next week. And so Jesus spoke into that heart of anxiety, and he says, listen, don't be anxious because God cares for you. He has numbered the hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that every day is going to hold for you. And he has said, I am your father and I will provide for you. And so Jesus says, instead of seeking wealth from this earth, instead of seeking satisfaction from your physical experience, seek the kingdom of God first. And then all of those things that you've been seeking after with your life, God will provide for them in the right time and the right way. He will give you what you need. So don't fear, don't worry, don't be anxious for anything, but instead seek God first with the energies of your life. Seek his righteousness first and everything else that you've been seeking for satisfaction, well, that will come along in its right time. Now that's easier said than done. It's like looking at a kid who's just struck out in a baseball game and say, you'll do it next time you're up to bat. All you gotta do is keep your eye on the ball and make contact. Gee, if I could have done that in the previous seven pitches, it would have been a lot easier, right? But I'm going back to the dugout with a strikeout. So let's talk a little bit about what it takes to make contact here with this verse. 
Let's talk about some principles that might help you understand this in this next year so that you can experience satisfaction. First thing that we need to understand is that we have to seek God's kingdom backward. We have to seek it backward. Uh, In Little League, we do this thing where we warm up before every practice and every game. And one of the things that I do as a coach or an assistant coach is I make the kids run backwards. I do it not because it's funny to watch, but it really is. It really is. Because the minute we start to do things backwards, you know what we do? We mess up. And when you have to run backwards, you literally fall right on your duff. Not, not just proverbially, but physically. And so you've got all of these kids who are on this team, and they're so proud, and they feel like they're on this team, and everything's going to go great. And you say, I want you to run to the fence and back, backwards. And at first they look at you like you're crazy. It is impossible to run backwards, sir. I decline your offer and your instruction. And then I say, I'll do it with you. In fact, I bet I can run faster backwards than most of you can run forwards. And why can I do that? Because I've run backwards a lot, because my coach has made me do this. Now, there's physical reasons to do this, but it's just an illustration today. When we start learning about Jesus, when we start following him, the way of approaching Jesus, the way of listening to Jesus, the way of obeying Jesus, often seems backwards to the ways that we learn to live our ordinary life in the world. Jesus' kingdom is a backwards kingdom. Or some people say that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's not a kingdom that is like this world. And so the way that we do things in Jesus' kingdom is different than the way that we do things in the way that we grew up. So for instance, when you are a religious person, you are seeking Jesus' kingdom forward. And what you're doing is you're doing religious things so that you will be acceptable to God. You go to church, you sing the songs, you listen to the sermon so that you can learn the right way to be so that you can be a moral person and an ethical person, so that you can approach God and say, God, I have done everything you asked. Therefore, will you bless me in these ways? Will you give me eternal life? Will you take care of my household? Will you watch over my children? Will you help me in my business? Will you take care of my health? And you know what's amazing is God is gracious and he brings blessings. You know what's amazing is that God is gracious and he brings suffering because he knows that you need both of these things. And none of that is dependent on your performance because his kingdom is backwards. This is the way that I grew up. I grew up in a traditional denomination. And by the time I graduated high school, I was pretty convinced that good people went to heaven and bad people went to hell and that I was a good person. Not because I was a perfect person, but because I did enough good to outweigh the bad that I did and that I was overall a moral and ethical person, and therefore I was acceptable in God's eyes. The problem is, is that was a lie that I told myself, right? It's not something God says in his word, but it's something that I believed in my heart. I met many other people like this who've come from all sorts of religious backgrounds, whether it's Buddhism or some broken form of Christianity or Catholicism or even just being an atheist. If you're good, then you're good to go. And if you're not, well, then you should get good to go because eventually you need to be good. So the universe or God or whatever you believe in can accept you. But ultimately, this is not the way that God asks us to approach him. In fact, it's opposite. See, we actually get to have a relationship with God because of what he did for us, not because of what we did for him. I love the song that the Clarks sang. They said that he was rejected, he was despised, he suffered on our behalf 
because he loves us. It's what Jesus did for us that matters most. Christianity is the opposite of a marathon. What do you do in a marathon? You work really hard for a long time, like 26 miles. And you do that because you're crazy, right? And you do that because you want to be healthy. And then at the end, what do you do? You cross the finish line and you celebrate and you look at your record and you think at how, of how well you did it. And then most people who do marathons are crazy enough that they're already thinking about the next time, how they can improve, how they can do it better, how they can cross the finish line again. In Christianity, there's no marathon to run because Jesus already ran the marathon. He suffered every mile of the journey for you. He crossed the finish line and then he invites you into the winner's circle, into the winner's place. You start it backwards. You start it in victory, not in work. You start it in rest and finishing, not in waiting to accomplish. You enter the kingdom by faith, not by work. And so you seek the kingdom by faith, not by work. It's a backwards kingdom. This is the very thing that Jesus is talking about in my summary of chapter 6's short part of Jesus' sermon here. Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's very much against everything you learned in school, right? I mean, you learned your whole life to store up treasures on earth. You have a savings account. You have a garage. You have closets. You have retirement funds. You have children. Why do you have all these things? So you have what you need and you don't have to be anxious. Jesus continues... He says, store up for yourselves treasures on heaven, where moth or rust they can't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You think your treasures are making life better, but God knows that your earthly treasures are clogging up your spiritual hearts. They're taking your focus off the thing that matters most, and they're causing you to have issues in that spiritual heart. And he says, therefore, you need to place your treasures in a new place. You need to store your treasures not on earth, but in heaven, in the things of God, so that your heart will be set on the things of God. And he says this not because God is matriculating some sort of eternal interest and benefiting from you like a bank that receives your money. He does this because he cares for your personal heart. Jesus continues, he says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, this is pretty wild. Because as a kid, inherently, in my flesh, and maybe you're the same way, I've always worried about what I'm going to eat and what I'm going to drink. How many of us would finish breakfast and then look at mom and say, mom, what's for lunch? You've done this before, right? And your kids have done this to you. And as a parent, I remember receiving that look from my parents like, why are they so offended that I'm asking about what's for lunch? And they're like, why, why can't you be satisfied with what you just had? Are you hungry? Do you need more food? No, 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 I'm not. I just want to know what's coming next. You know, I'm just planning for more satisfaction in a moment. We inherently are worried about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. You all got dressed today. Thank you, by the way. We all appreciate that you put on pants this morning. 
Thank you for blessing us with your pants or your skirt or whatever you're wearing. It's a good thing. But did you worry about that? Sometimes, sometimes we do, right? I mean, I set out my clothes for church on Saturday night. It's not that I'm worried about it, but I know that if I don't have a plan, it will become urgent, right? It's 9.45, and I am nearly naked. I better make some choices here. But many of us also want to present ourselves in a specific way to other people. We want to be judged as appropriate and acceptable. And so we do ultimately think about what we wear. We may have already trained ourselves what's appropriate, and so it's less of a worry, but it's something that we consider. Now, considering something doesn't make it a worry, but it can become a worry. Jesus continues, Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how, God's clo- if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and then thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do more for you, much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is backward. My kingdom is upside down. You're worried about your physical life. Be more worried about your spiritual life. You're worried about what's going to happen to your body. Be concerned about the condition of your soul. Be concerned about the condition of your spirit because that's worth so much more than your physical life. Think about this. How many of you have faced physical suffering and you've been concerned that life will be so challenging, it will be hard, it will be less because you won't have the same physical things? A few years ago, I got really sick. I had a staph infection over most of my body. I looked like a lizard man. It looked like I was wearing a turtleneck and I was just all red and bumpy and and I felt like I was going to die and and I may have been close or some bad physical signs. And so I went into the season of like, how can I get healthy? I had some allergy issues that contributed to this. And so the doctor told me that I was going to have to do an elimination diet and that I was going to be allowed to eat meat and some vegetables and some fruit. No sugars, no sweeteners, no dairy. Okay, I really like cheese. I'm a huge fan of ice cream. Um, You could probably tell by looking at me, but I like food a lot and I, I have to worry about eating to live instead of living to eat because I really like uh, food and what food brings to my physical senses. And so when the doctor told me this, I felt like I was going to die inside. I was like, I can't have ice cream for 90 days. I can't put flavoring in my coffee. I, 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 can't, I can't have my favorite things. And I remember it, it created this little existential crisis in me. Like, but what will I have? Like, will life be worth living without this stuff? And it kind of surprised me as a Christian to realize that I was having these thoughts inside, that my physical life was so important to me, that with just a little bit of suffering, which by the way, changing your diet is just a little bit of suffering, right, in the grand scheme of things. And then as I gave those things up, and as I turned my attention towards God, I realized that there was so much more life beyond what I was eating. 
that it was okay that breakfast was quinoa with raisins in it every day because I needed protein and sustenance, but I couldn't have eggs anymore, right? It was okay that I couldn't have my favorite things for lunch and that I was going to have to eat like a rabbit and then have some rabbit on top of that and that was it, you know? It was okay that I wasn't going to have what I wanted because God was giving me so much more than physical pleasure and my happiness wasn't bound up in that. But it was a challenge. Some of you have been through greater trials. You've been to the doctor and it hasn't been a change in diet. It's been an injection of poison through chemotherapy. It's been a removal of organs through surgery for the sake of your body. And I've sat with many of you in that moment and it's been a huge crisis. But then we've turned to the Lord and we've said, Lord, what do you have for us in this? We trust you more than we trust this diagnosis. And we trust you through this trial no matter what. And so would you be present and would you bring, bring glory to your name through this season of life? And then you know what you find? There's deeper satisfaction in that season and the end of that season than there was before that. Because God's kingdom is greater than our physical experience on earth. We can find him in the backward moments. In the times where the world says your life should be the worst, you can find that God is the closest. This is the heart of promises from the Lord, like Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. So often that's a, a verse on a 13-year-old girl's Bible but it's really tattooed on your soul by the time you're 75 because you realize that it's not just about the little plans, but it's about God's greatest plans for your life, the closeness that he longs to have with you, the eternal experience and the eternal truth that he wants to pour into you, the translating of his love and his life in you and in your life to those around you where you experience the kingdom. So you have to experience it backwards, not by making it happen for you, but by trusting the God who can do it in you. You have to experience it backwards, not by earning salvation, but by trusting in Jesus and set for salvation. Not just in the first moment of your faith, but every moment of life and faith after that. It's a backward kingdom. And Jesus needs, is calling for you to enter it in a backwards way, not in your own effort, but in his effort alone. Next, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Do you open your eyes? Do you smash the alarm clock or poke the phone? Do you turn to your spouse and say good morning? Do you think to yourself and to the Lord, good morning, Lord. It's your day. It's another day. That's the first thing that you do. So we are talking about first, right? As in the thing that you do immediately. Seeking Jesus first. Seeking his kingdom first. There's lots of ways to do that, but it's important that you do that. Do you pause before you eat and thank the Lord for the blessing of the meal? Do you ask him to continue to walk with you from then until the next time where you're going to pause and do that? That's just one way of seeking God first. When I was an early Christian, there was a Sarah Groves song, and the song said, would the first song that I sing be praises to my God and King? And the whole point of the song was, would I start my day with my heart and my mind on you and your kingdom, Lord? Would I not give my life, my breath, the offering of the day to anything else but you? And so I want to start my day first by seeking you. This is the pattern that Jesus modeled, by the way. Over and over again in the Gospels, it says that Jesus arose early in the morning and he went off to a desolate place, not because he was an introvert and he was tired of being around people. We're tempted to do that sometimes, right? But because he wanted time with his heavenly father. And his disciples knew that. 
And like little kids crowding around the chocolate chip cookie bowl while they're being made, the disciples gathered around Jesus and they said, Jesus, would you teach us what it's like for you to relate to the Father? Because your prayer life, your time with the Father is so much bigger and better than ours. So could we just have a little bit of the dough and will you share the recipe with us? Because they wanted to learn to seek Jesus first. But first isn't just a timing thing. It's a place in your heart. See, Christ isn't just to be prominent in your life. He's to be preeminent in your life, as our friend Jerry Benjamin reminded us this fall. See, when something is prominent, it's among other things. It's something that is important to you. But when it's preeminent, it's the most important to you. If you were to tell someone, my wife is among the prominent loves of my life, what would your wife think? What else do you love besides me in the same way that you love me, right? And for some of us, they know already the car in the garage, the recliner in the TV remote, right? The cold beer at 4 p.m. Those are a bigger priority than me sometimes. Men, if that's the case, watch out. <laughs> you need to love your wife like Christ loved the church, which means giving those things up for her. It's not just prominence that this kingdom needs in your life. It's preeminence. It's the first place in your heart. It's the first place in your life. It's that you have sought the kingdom first. Have you made God's kingdom your first priority? A better way to answer that is, what is my real first priority? What is the thing that is most important to me? Is it the financial bottom line? That the checkbook is in the black? That the bills are paid on time? Is it your health? Is that your first priority? Is it making people around you happy? Is it making you happy? At least I got my happy today. At least I found my bliss. Jesus says that's not the way to live a successful life. That's not the way to find satisfaction in life. We all know this because when we do that, we find things ultimately that dissatisfy us. We find this place existentially in our soul where we don't have the deepest satisfaction that we long for and are designed to have. Jesus says, make my kingdom preeminence and all of the things will be added unto you. The satisfaction that you long for will be discovered. Make my kingdom first, both in priority and in the place in your life, that Jesus receives the highest place, that his kingdom is the most important, the greatest priority. In Matthew 4, 17, it says something significant about Jesus' ministry. I invite you to turn to that. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, he was literally announcing, the king of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is near you, therefore, repent. Now, repent is a theological word that Christians throw around, and if you're not familiar with it, it just means to turn towards God. Now, when I say just, I mean it simply means that, because this act of turning towards God is a huge and significant thing for you. In one way, it's the first step of belief that you would turn toward Jesus, and you'd say, Jesus, I want the eternal life that you offer me. I acknowledge that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that, and I want the eternal life that you give me. And you have it. You have eternal life. Jesus says that the one who believes in me has eternal life. And so that first act of repentance in one way is belief. But the heart of repentance doesn't just stay there. See, repentance is about turning my life towards Jesus. We receive eternal life when we turn towards Jesus and believe. 
but we receive satisfaction when we turn to Jesus with our whole life. When we say, Jesus, I want you first and foremost. I'm not going to seek those other things anymore. I'm going to seek you first. What are some of the things that you seek first? I know for me, I crave comfort and security. So I find things in life that make me comfortable, that make me feel secure, and I camp out there. I stay in those places because I would way rather be comfortable and secure than take risks in life and experience pain and failure and rejection. But the crazy thing is, is when I set those idols aside of comfort and security, Jesus invites me on an awesome adventure that has pain and rejection in it, but it's so much more satisfying than the comfort and security that I would build my own life around. How about you? What do you seek after first? Do you seek after significance? Do you want to matter to other people and so you do things so that people think of you first? Do you send those Christmas cards so that you'll get Christmas cards back and know that you matter? Do you call friends on their birthday so that they'll call you on your birthday and think of you? Do you long to hear that thank you for the good thing that you give more than the opportunity to give it to that person? If so, you probably want to be known more than you want to know others. You probably find your hope in being important to other people in them saying that you matter. And you know what you're going to miss? The only voice that counts saying you matter, which is God's voice, because he's the one that brings satisfaction to your life. Do you crave for power? Do you like to be an in-control person in charge of the people around you? Do you like it when you have a big wake? When you enter the room and people go, whoa, they are here. Do you like having that personal gravitas so that when you walk in the room, people look alive? You're the person in control and in charge, and when you're not, you don't feel like you're important. Do you know what you're missing out? God's power in your life. Because when you repent from being a person of power and say, God, I want your power to matter most, you realize that his power flowing in you and through you gets a whole lot more done than you hope that you can get done in your own life, and it's things that are eternal and things that matter. Now, there's pain there, too, because you give up your own sense of glory. But there's satisfaction because you see God's glory. 2 Corinthians 4 says that's food for your soul. Without that, you're starving. Do you seek comfort and security like I do? If you do, you're missing out on the comfort of the Lord and the security that he brings. If you're in that place, then you need to repent today. You need to say, God, I'm going to turn from these things towards you so that I can be satisfied in my soul. I'm going to turn to you, God. Next, you need to seek his reign in your life. That's really what the kingdom is. The kingdom is the place where the king reigns. It's where the king's rule is true. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is not just talking about their eternal salvation. He's talking about salvation in this life from the things that we're dealing with. And he's not saying God's going to pluck you out of all of your problems. He's going to give you strength to endure the difficulty that you're going through. The first step of that is acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. You are the king of my life, and I want your reign to be true in your life, in my life. Jesus models this in the disciples' prayer that he teaches the disciples when they ask him to teach them how to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. May your name be holy, Heavenly Father. 
You're saying the kingdom is greater than I am. The king is greater than I am. And I want his will in my life. If you want to be satisfied, you need to seek God's will first. This is the key to our own righteousness. It's obedience. My family was on a a long road trip uh, this last week visiting family and friends. Then we stopped at a McDonald's to get some iced tea and use the restroom and get back on the road. And as we walked in, there was this man sitting there with this amazing t-shirt on. He looked like he could be your dad, most of you. So he had some extra years on him. And the t-shirt just had four words on it. Hear Jesus, obey Jesus. It was a very convicting and compelling t-shirt. I found myself walking by and looking at it over and over again. I was thinking, how amazing is this t-shirt? He's giving you the key to the disciple's life. Listen to Jesus and do what he says. That's exactly the heart language that Christopher was talking about on the stage a few minutes ago. What is the language of God in John 12? This is my son. Listen to him. God's love language is that you would hear him and seek after him and do what he desires. Isn't that awesome? By the way, he's doing that same thing towards you, right? He's listening to you, and he's seeking after you, and he's seeking to give you what your soul truly desires. So you have to seek his reign in your life. Now, Jesus is the king of the universe, right? I mean, he sits on his throne, and everything happens ultimately according to his plan and his will. And yet at the same time, we each need to take the step to say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I want you to rule in my life. I want you to lead me and teach me and instruct me. So I want you to be the king of my mind. I want you to be the king of my body. I want you to be the king of my soul. And I want to listen to you first and foremost. No longer is the hunger of my stomach going to drive me. No longer is the hunger of my mind going to drive me. But instead, your truth and your will and what you hunger for will drive me. Finally, You have to seek God's kingdom to experience true satisfaction. I mean, Jesus says it, right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you. It's already been done for you. All you have to do is seek it. He's right there, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is where? Near. Not far, not distant, not coming tomorrow, here today, right now for you. Would you seek it? Would you repent? Would you let God lead you to the satisfaction of your heart? There are so many people throughout history, and even right now who have done this. Some of them have said things like, God, your nearness to me is my good. Some of them have said things like, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord will give you the delight of your soul, the delight of your heart. Others have said, I can lose everything, but if I just have Jesus, that is actually everything that I really want. It's the way to real and true satisfaction. This year, as you plan for your year, plan to seek Jesus. Plan to seek Jesus right now. Plan to seek him later today. Plan to seek him tomorrow. Make him the preeminent figure of your life, and your heart will be satisfied and your year will be satisfying, and your life will be satisfying, because you will have the one who can satisfy you deepest right there 
in the center of it with you everywhere you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time with you today. Thank you for the way that you have loved us and led us. Thank you for the things that you have taught us. We pray, Father, that this truth of seeking you and your kingdom first would be ringing in our hearts and ringing in our minds, not just this day, but every day. And help us, Father, to give, us, give up those things that would cause us to worry, cause us to fear that life won't be satisfying, so that we can grab a hold of you and know your satisfaction and your love the most. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.